0: invite you to turn in the Word of God this evening to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. The Reverend Mooney was referring to 1976. I was thinking, what what connection do I have to that date? It's going to imply that I'm older than I am. (laughs) We've been in The U.S. now for two and a half years. We were previously in Canada for about four years. And there are just as many challenges here as there is in the United Kingdom and across the world. But I often come to meetings like this or gatherings and assemblies where there's a focus on young people just like you. And the vast majority of you have never known anything but church. And I remember when I was first converted, 19 coming in from all the folly of sin, even by that stage. And I was so... (laughs) Whatever... Dr. Pollock wants to make of me saying the happiest day of my life was my conversion and not my wedding day. I was so overcome by the love of God in Jesus Christ. And it seemed as if everyone around me, and not everyone, but many and certainly Quite a number just did not seem to understand. It seemed like they had forgotten how amazing it is that Christ died for the ungodly. You need to pray, young people, that you see it and only God can show it to you. And our hearts can become very cold and very callous. And of course, we're living in a time when there are many questions, many challenges to what you believe or what you're taught to believe. Many. And I've been given the task tonight to deal with one of those challenges. I have to deal with the subject, how do we know the Bible is true? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered whether you can trust the Word of God? Whether things preached Are important enough to live your life by them? I mean, if this is God's word and it is true, we can't live as if it is not. If we do, we will destroy ourselves. But what does it mean to really understand that the Bible is true? What does it mean to live as if the Bible is true? What difference would it make in your life if you took to yourself this sense, this is the very Word of God? What does that mean for the rest of my life? Well, I turn your attention to John 17, and I think tomorrow night you'll also be turned to this passage, so I'm not dealing with it as it will be dealt with next or in our next session tomorrow night with the Reverend Eshelman. But our Lord Jesus is praying, and He is praying over His people, over His disciples, longing for such things as we find in verse 17. Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. That will form our text tonight, and we'll use that as a springboard. We're trying to establish What the Lord Jesus says here, Thy word is truth. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. And young people, I want you to pray. Pray for yourself. Pray that God would really help you. Because if you get a hold of this, if you understand truly that the Bible is true, it will change your life if it hasn't already. Lord, we thank Thee for Thy word and there are many here tonight that have felt its power and the desire to live by it and we are thankful for every such life they have come to understand thy love for them and they have thrown their lives into the arms of their god resting in the finished work of christ and we're thankful for them we pray that tonight's message would just help further establish their convictions and bless them that Their commitment to Christ is not a vain commitment. And their desire to live according to the Word is not a vain desire. For those who remain with doubts and questions and unbelief, help them to really listen. They don't want to listen. I know that. They're just counting the minutes until the meeting is over. But God, do an unusual thing. Give them ears. Give them a real desire to get a hold of some of these things and come to terms with the need to submit to the Word of God. So we just cry to Thee, tabernacle with us, give us help, and make much of Thy truth. May every utterance be owned by Thee, fill us with Thy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're living in a very skeptical age, young people. And the problem is that you are just a few seconds away from finding some of the so-called problems that there may be with the things that you grew up with. If you had questions about God's Word in the past, where would you go? You would go to your parents. You would go to your minister. You might go to a library or pick up a book or something of that nature, but you don't always do that now, do you? What do you do? You Google it. (laughs) You Google it. And so you don't necessarily Google how do we know the Bible is true. That may not be what you Google and what you put in will make a difference. You will ask something like is the Bible is true or are there contradictions in the Bible or questions that almost have the assumption of a problem in them. Of course then you'll find all sorts of Articles or as what has become more common nowadays, YouTube videos. It's basically taken over. If you have a choice between reading an article and watching a video, I know what you're going to click on. You're going to click on the video. And some person, any person, anyone with perhaps no credibility or calls himself a reverend and yet he got his title on Google, the same place where you're looking for an answer, Or he's some kind of crazy person that no one who actually knows him would ever trust, but there he is, in front of a camera, acting all authoritative. And you take him at face value, and you're influenced by some of the things that are there, the things that may undermine your faith. People who might say, I used to believe these things, I no longer believe them anymore. You don't know their background, you don't know who they are, and yet you you place all this weight on what they say very dangerous. But when one begins to ask questions about Christianity, the focus tends to turn to two general subjects. Is there a God, and can we trust the Bible? These two subjects are foundational in Christian doctrine. If you were to pick up, and I'm sure you you don't, but maybe you, you might somewhere along the line, a systematic theology book, you would realize that foundational aspect to establishing what we, what we know is that first, God is, and second, God has spoken. And that really summarizes the two questions. Is there a God? God is. And how do we know what He has said? Well, He has spoken. Well, it's not my purpose to deal with the first tonight to address the question, is there a God? The Bible assumes it, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God Moses makes no attempt to prove the existence of God. Nowhere in the Bible do you have any attempt really to prove the existence of God. It is taken for granted. But the assumption that because the Bible doesn't prove the existence of God, it doesn't set out to prove the existence of God, that therefore there is nothing to prove the existence of God is not true. There's lots that proves the existence of God. Compelling arguments for the existence of God. And as someone who used to profess that there is no God, I am well aware of them. I don't know if you go to public school. Many of you, no doubt, are homeschooled. I know many of you go to Christian school. But I went to public school, and there were some Christians in my public school. I used to make fun of them. used to mock them. So if you go to public school, or maybe even at the Christian school, or any other environment, and you find someone mocking you for your faith for what you believe, <laughs> maybe you can just turn around and say, I know someone who used to be just like you. And God made him a preacher. Maybe <laughs> someday you'll be a preacher. Don't enter into the silly nonsense. You find joy and mockery of things they don't even understand. The bottom line for me in relation to the existence of God, is that I cannot make sense of the world without God. I can't. Without God, I have no good reason to believe in any absolutes, moral absolutes, material absolutes, spiritual absolutes, anything of that nature that someone might suppose or put before us. I have no good reason to believe in any absolutes whatsoever. And if I have no good reason to believe them, but I can't escape them, that my life continually bumps into the reality that there are these absolutes, then basically without God I can't answer why I am here, and I have no ability to live consistently with what I know to be true. So I want to deny the existence of God, but then I know that there are these moral absolutes, that these things that are unchangeable, that there's right and there's wrong, and I want to maintain that because if I don't, there's chaos, and I don't want to live in a world where there are no more absolutes. But I can't make sense of it without God, and that's just a little insight into some of the reasons as to why I know there's a God and why you know there's a God. Every single one of us know there is a God. Then the question, of course, arises well, if there's a God, and I know that there's a God then this God must be consistent. Otherwise, he would not be God. And if he's consistent, then there has to be one truth that he wants me to know. So then the question is, well, which truth? Or what religion? I can't go into all the various religions tonight, but I can say this. Contradictory religions cannot be equally true. So the question then, which religion? I'm saying tonight, it is Christianity. And I hope by what I say tonight that will undergird your conviction that the only truth, the only truth, the only religious truth, at least, we're thinking in the context of who God is and who we are and what we're to believe in terms of Him and ourselves, that Christianity is the only one with the answer, the only truth that God has given. And Jesus assumes it here when He says, Thy word is truth. You ask the question, look at it in your Bible. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. How do we know? Jesus says it, okay. That doesn't establish it as fact. That doesn't make it so simply because he says it. And what Jesus here is dealing with is presenting what we call special revelation. You have general revelation. We know there's a God by the world in which we live The heavens declare the glory of God. That's how you know there's a God. That's one way. But here he speaks of a particular truth which is God revealing to you specific things that you must know that go beyond simply knowing he exists. Truth that can change the life. The things that we must understand if we are to truly worship him in spirit. Well, Jesus says, thy word is truth. That if you want to know what God has revealed, it is in his word. And the implications of that will be dealt with tomorrow night, that you will be sanctified by them. Reverend Eshelman will look at that. So how am I going to deal then with this question? The Bible is true. There are a number of ways. And if you look into this subject, you'll find different ways. As I looked over different ways men had approached this and sat down and thought about it and mulled it over over the past number of weeks, I came to the conclusion you know, the best thing to do is to work backwards. Work backwards. Start at a point, establish a truth that is powerful and profound, and from there work our way back to understand the Bible as true. So, what I'm going to endeavor to do tonight is first establish that Christ's rising from the dead is a miracle that cannot be explained. By natural scientific laws, whatever. It is a miracle. And it actually happened. So we're starting from the resurrection. I'll also seek to establish that since Christ predicted his own death and resurrection, his other claims relating to the scriptures can't be ignored. Here you have a man who rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And he is saying things. He said things about his own death and resurrection, he predicted it in detail. And now he's saying other things about the Word of God. So, if a man, we might dismiss him as a crazy person, but once he dies and rises again in the precise way that he said, then we have to go back and think, well, what else did he say? Because if he said that, and it came to pass like that, in the way that he said it would, in a most marvelous fashion, in a way that has never been done before, then I must take seriously everything else he said about the Word. What he says about the Bible matters. And if he he elevates Scripture and says this is God's Word, then I have to take that on board. We'll also look at some evidences and just remark on them very quickly. So the main focus tonight, the most of the time will be given to the matter of the resurrection, which seems strange, but I hope you're, you're tracking with me. So if we can establish that, Jesus Christ died and rose again the way he said then what he says about scripture can't be ignored and then you can know what you have in your hands is the very word of God and it is true so first establishing the historicity of the resurrection of Christ I need you to stay awake I do <laughs> please stay awake because I've labored over this first of all why did I get this topic? That's the first one. But then once I got over that, I thought, well, we're just going to have to deal with it and do the best that we can. And I hope it's helpful for you and that the Lord uses it and it will be a means of encouragement. There have been those in the past that have challenged whether there really was a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And you will still come across people who will say Jesus didn't exist, Jesus as found in the Word of God, he's, he's not a historical character. You'll still find them. But largely, listen to me, largely, even among the most ardent skeptics, there is a consensus that Jesus Christ lived. In fact, an area of study has been done surrounding the resurrection of Jesus in which the goal was to create all the facts that even the most critical, liberal, atheistic scholars agree upon. It's a PhD work of Dr. Gary Habermas called The Minimal Facts Approach to the Resurrection of Jesus. And if you were to read that, you will see that th- he just states, even those who don't believe in God, even they agree that these facts are true. And one of them, of course, is the fact that Jesus was a real historical character. He actually lived. He actually died by means of crucifixion. And that many people believed that he rose again from the dead. Whether it actually happened or not, certainly many, many people believed it. That's Those are atheists saying that. These are Jews agreeing with that. They they agree. They assent to those facts. So if you come across some numbskull around your age who thinks he's figured out the entire world and says Jesus didn't live, just ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about. They haven't the first clue. So just dismiss them. Say, look, you haven't a clue What you're talking about, Jesus, even those who don't believe, agree, Jesus lived. So as we establish the historicity of the resurrection of Christ, I want to do it in two ways. First, think about the empty tomb, and then the resurrection itself. So the empty tomb. I imagine you'll agree that it would be extremely difficult to convince people that someone rose from the dead. How do you convince people that someone rose from the dead? From the dead. How do you do that? Would you believe it if someone just told you it happened? The followers of Christ were able, listen, they were able to preach Christ's resurrection convincingly and to the conversion of thousands who already had a bias not to believe it. The very existence and widespread nature of Christianity affirms this. So how did they do it? How did they convince thousands and thousands of people to believe? Well, it would have to have, first of all, the absence of a corpse. If you say someone died and rose again, and you're seeking to establish that, there has to be the absence of a corpse, and then the presence of multiple witnesses that saw him alive after he had died. Now, neither one of these would be convincing on their own. If you say you have A, there's the absence of the corpse, but there's not B, multiple witnesses that saw Christ alive, then you just say what? His body's gone missing or it's stolen. All right, doesn't prove anything. And if you have B but not A, a lot of people who say, I saw him alive, but you're able to find the corpse, then that's not going to stand either. So you have to have both. So how do we establish that there was actually an empty tomb? Well, a number of ways. First, the witness of anti-Christian Jewish writings. Early anti-Christian Jewish writings, that is Jews who were writing in opposition to Christianity, did not deny the existence of Jesus. They didn't deny his existence, they didn't deny his death, and they did not deny the empty tomb. They simply continue to claim what we find at the end of Matthew 28, that the body was stolen. You'll find this in one writing, the book of the generations of Jesus written by a Jew. And by arguing as they do there, they admit Christ's existence and that he died. And they also admit that the tomb was empty. But they argue that it was empty because the body was stolen. That's that's what they say. Now, of course, they don't want to admit that. You don't, if, you're the, if you're trying to get people not to believe this, you don't want there to be an empty tomb. You want there to be an actual corpse. That's what you would want. If you were a Jew trying to maintain an unbelief in Jesus Christ, you want, there to, you want to find the body of Jesus. But they're unable to establish that. That's impossible. And they have to admit then that there actually was an empty tomb And that's undeniable. Everyone agrees on that fact. But that doesn't give us everything, does it? We want to go further and see not only were there anti-Christian Jewish writings that talk about this, but secondly, the involvement of a notable member of the Sanhedrin in the burial process also helps establish an empty tomb. You read your Bible, you'll find a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea being key to the burial of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Well, there's lots of things that could be said, but I want you to think about Joseph of Arimathea was a member of an elect, a very select, rather, group of key members of Jewish leadership, okay? So imagine someone equivalent, like someone on the Supreme Court. These aren't regular people. They are are very powerful. They are famous. They are well-known people. And the scripture says that Joseph of Arimathea, this man who was known, took, was able to, by the power of his influence, get the body of Jesus and to put that body in his own tomb. By noting that, if you're reading that and you have any doubts, what can you do? You can go, you can talk about those who... talk to those who may have known Joseph of Arimathea. The point is this. It would have no impact to say a famous person had did something. To write that down is easy to dismiss. You could just undermine everything the apostles taught if they say Joseph of Arimathea got the body of Jesus, laid it in the tomb, and you get his testimony. He says either, number one, I didn't do that. Well, then you dismiss the whole story. Or number two, he says, I, I laid it in the tomb, and his testimony is that it was empty. It actually was empty. I mean, that has a powerful influence. And if Joseph of Arimathea says that this body was laid in the tomb, and then it was empty, and I believe it ro- he rose again from the dead, there's power in that. It's not just an ordinary Joe on the street. This is a very powerful, influential, respected member of society who's who's involved in the story. You don't just name drop like that and expect everyone's going to believe it actually happened without going to someone like Joseph or people who knew him to establish the veracity of the claim. The very fact you involve someone of that degree of power and influence, you better be right or you undermine your entire testimony. So I assume then that there was an empty tomb because if there wasn't, Joseph of Arimathea would have known about it and the whole thing would have fallen apart. Thirdly, the involvement of the woman in the discovery of the empty tomb is also a powerful testimony to the fact that there actually was a tomb that had the body of Jesus and then it was empty. Because... The reason why it's powerful, especially in the 21st century, when we forget what the world was like back then, if you're fabricating an empty tomb story, if you're saying that your leader, your master died and was placed in a tomb and then the tomb was empty, he was no longer there because he rose from the dead, you would never, ever use the testimony of women in the first century to establish what you're trying to say. You wouldn't. They are And I don't mean this disrespectfully, girls. I'm just saying the reality of the world in that time, in that place, the testimony would have amounted to almost tiddly squat. It's the complete opposite of Joseph of Arimathea. And so if you're trying to argue and and convince people that these significant characters were involved and saw that the tomb was empty, you don't bring in the testimony of a woman to first discover it. You don't say that. (laughs) <laughs> because their, their testimony means so much. So, in order to involve them, the only answer as to why they're involved is the fact that they actually happened. It doesn't help those who are saying there was an empty tomb to say that the woman found it. It doesn't help. If they're, if they're lying about it, that's a bad way to go about it. Do you follow? The only sense it makes to those who are trying to argue for the fact there was an empty tomb. Is if it actually happened and they couldn't deny it. So there must have been an empty tomb. But that brings us into the resurrection itself. Establishing the empty tomb is important, it's not insignificant. But it doesn't, of course, necessitate a resurrection. Maybe the Jews or the Romans stole it. But again, of course, that would have been counterproductive. They would they would rather present the actual body and say that it, here here is the body. Maybe the disciples stole it. That, of course, was the argument. But then that would have subjected them, of course, to death all the while, knowing that it was a lie. That they're going to change their lives. They're going to be cast out of their society, despised and hated and put to death based upon a lie. Apart from the miraculous aspect, the resurrection is the most probable explanation for all the details that we have. So, how do we address the miraculous? Because you can't ignore it. (laughs) This is the most probable outcome, but it necessitates a miracle. Well, of course, then the critic says, yes, it necessitates a miracle. I have a problem with that. So, how do we prove a miracle? How do you stand before the world today and prove a miracle? How does the world want you to prove a miracle? What are they going to say to you? It's not scientific. I need the scientific method to be applied to this, which of course demands that it's observable, measurable, and repeatable. So if someone comes to you and says, I need scientific evidence for the resurrection, <laughs> just 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 stop for a moment and say, hang on, okay, I'm claiming a miracle here, and you're asking for the scientific method. The scientific method requires that it's repeatable. If it was repeatable, we wouldn't be dealing in the realm of the miraculous. We confess it's a miracle. Of course it's a miracle. So the standard of testing is not the scientific method. You can't apply the scientific method to the resurrection. It's a miracle. What you can apply are the laws that govern the courtroom scene evidence you can't bring it into the lab you bring it into the courtroom and that's what was going on in the time of the first century when it happened and what the apostles are arguing and how they're presenting the matter is that they are they're presenting the, the facts of this and the witnesses of the events to endeavor to show people the reality of what happened turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15 this came up in the quiz, so you should know exactly what the contents of this chapter are. 1 Corinthians 15. The chapter in the Bible that deals with the doctrine of the resurrection, I think was the question. Something like that. So Paul can't bring you into a lab to prove what he believes. Instead, he brings you into a courtroom. What do you need in the courtroom? You need witnesses. So 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures are looking forward, telling us that Messiah must die. So the events that he is now preaching are in accordance with what Scripture said must take place. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Okay, so we can't bring the resurrection into a lab. We can bring it into a courtroom. And what we need in the courtroom is witnesses. We need witnesses to come and say, yes, yes, this man, there was an empty tomb. That's been established. And the reason for it being empty is because I saw with my eyes The man that was crucified on that, on the Calvary, in that middle tree. And Paul again, he he gives specific names. He details specific individuals. He is basically inviting you to go and check with them. And he is declaring that on one occasion, over 500, over 500 saw Jesus Christ. And they all were convinced by it. They all were persuaded by it. And he said, the greater part remain, that is over 250 of them, remain unto this day. In other words, he is inviting anyone who doubts to, to, to go and talk to them. Go and talk. Hear the evidence. Now, you have the case, the courtroom scene. And someone is declaring that a man rose from the dead. And on this occasion, you have a stream of over 250, well over 250 people who come in one after another and give you the details as to what happened. Where were you? What took place? What was said? What was he doing? Who else was there? And you can inquire into all the individuals separately. You can go down through 250 of them asking the same questions, interrogating them as to the events that took place and Coming to a conclusion. That's what Paul's inviting here. Go and ask. And I say to you, this is part of the reason I believe that the greatest number of the conversion of Jews happened in this period. It happened at this time. It's very difficult to get Jews to believe today. Very difficult. But Christianity was launched and established, and a foundation was laid by Jewish believers. And you think of how difficult it is to get Jews to believe today. It was no different back then. It was because there was evidence that could not be denied. They couldn't ignore it. And so you read in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6, a great number of the priests believed. Why? Why? These men are surrounded by people who are saying, we must... Squash this sect. We must destroy these believers. We must wipe them out. Saul of Tarsus rises up at that time and he's, he's, he's bent on destroying the Christian faith. And yet these leaders keep coming to Christ. These individuals that are still living, still there, they're being persuaded by the fact that so many saw Jesus Christ for themselves. Did they all hallucinate? <laughs> I think that's part of the reason why the Lord did things like eat in front of them. Ghosts don't eat. But as a man, eat, He say, I'm a real man, risen from the dead. Look. Cooks fish by, by the sea so the disciples can see the risen Christ doing the very things he did prior to his death. This same Jesus. So I know that doesn't convince everyone. I know that you can stand in a courtroom and hear all of the evidence and just say, I still don't believe it. <laughs> and that's what people did. That's what they did. That's what they did during the life of Jesus Christ when he performed all those miracles. And they just would not believe. In fact, Jesus said, Jesus said, at least this was true of many of them, especially of the religious leaders, he said of them, how can you believe that receive honor one of another? What was he saying? I find that a very insightful remark of the Lord Jesus. How can you believe that receive honor one of another? What's he saying? He's saying when you elevate your status among men, when what matters to you is the honor that you receive from other people, you can't believe. You can't. The same applies to you. If you want to be cool, if you want to be accepted, if you want to be in the the clan of those in your school that are seen as the, the ones that are in, have it all together. You're not odd or weird or any... I don't know. I'm sure schools are the same as they were 20 years ago. If your whole desire is acceptance, young people, you're going to struggle to believe. And no amount of evidence I can present to you will make a difference because your God is, your God is to receive honor from your peers. It's what you worship. While you worship that, you can't worship Christ. And it doesn't make entrance into your heart and you will not believe. The enemies of of Christianity cannot deny the existence of Christ They cannot deny the empty tomb. And though they refused to acknowledge a literal resurrection, hundreds of people saw the risen Christ and were available for questions for decades after the resurrection. And I think all the evidence I've said already is why so many Jews believed at that time. So, where are we? Well, I've sought to establish... The fact that the resurrection is a historical event that took place. You can deny it. You can say it doesn't take place. But I say to you, in the the area of courtroom law, all these witnesses ratify, prove, and had a massive persuading influence on that first generation because they couldn't deny the reality. Even one thing, just one thing, one testimony that would undermine that Christ rose from the dead, the entire, the entire message of the Christian faith comes down like a house of cards. The resurrection of Jesus Christ really is the key issue. Jesus Christ rises from the dead. You can't ignore it. You cannot ignore it. Which is why I've begun there. But secondly then, establishing the truthfulness of the Scriptures by Christ's testimony. We can't ignore the testimony of Christ. Here is a man who lived on this earth, who did miracles, yes, said many things, yes, talked about his death in a certain way, and it happened that way. He said he would rise again. He rose again. All this happens according to the timeline he declares on the third day. And it all takes place. You can't ignore a man like that. You can't. So what did he say about Scripture? What would this man who rose from the dead tell you about the Word? Here you are on Google trying to find out, is the Bible true? And you're listening to some... (laughs) I'll be as play as possible. Just some person there on YouTube with their own little YouTube channel trying to become the next YouTube star... (laughs) telling you that the Bible's not true and so on. And then you have a man who rose from the dead exactly the way he said he would. And hundreds sought, And thousands were convinced by it. And an entire movement was generated by it. And you're listening to the guy. <laughs> the guy on YouTube, like, seriously? So we listened to what I had to say. Never man spake like this man. As I said, Jesus Christ predicted his death and resurrection. You find that in John chapter 2, the very beginning of his ministry. As he performed his first miracle, he then The record is then given to us. In John 2, verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. will thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You know what's interesting? The disciples only remembered after the resurrection. The enemies of Christ remembered. They remembered before that. If you go to Matthew chapter 26, you will find that one of the things they're trying to, trying to establish is our witnesses that witness against Christ. And the only thing they can come to bring before them, their witnesses don't agree together, but they find these two witnesses who say, this man said he would destroy the temple in three days, he would raise it up again. That, that, that stuck in their heads. But the significance of it was not to do with the physical temple, it was about himself. And there are other, of course, passages that relate to the same truth, predicting what would occur. So what did this man who died and rose again and did it in the way that he said, say about the Scripture? First, Christ believed the historicity of the biblical record. That is, that what the Bible records that happened, actually happened the way that it occurred. For example, Jesus viewed the life and death of Abel as history. Matthew 23, verse thirty five. So when you come in Genesis to Genesis chapter four and the story of Abel, Cain and Abel, and you're reading it and you're wondering, Is this really true? Well a man who died and rose again said it actually happened, said this took place. He related the account of Moses and the brazen serpent as history, John three fourteen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He viewed the life of Elijah and Elisha as history, Luke 4, 25 through 27. He considered Isaiah as a historical figure, John 12, 41. In addition, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, and others are all mentioned by Jesus as people who lived and the events that enveloped their lives actually occurred. So when people go to the Old Testament and they say this didn't happen, a man who died and rose again from the dead said... But it happened that way, and you can trust him over other people. Secondly, Christ believed the prophecies in the biblical record. Jesus believed Old Testament prophecies would come to pass, such as the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel in Matthew twenty-four, fifteen. He said these things would happen. So the, Bible's prof- the Old Testament scriptures prophesying of this. And then Jesus said, yes, this, this is true. This is going to happen. I believe it also will take place like this. Thirdly, Christ believed the miracles in the biblical record. Certain things that happened, supernatural things, maybe that's a better word than miracle. For example, the raining of fire and brimstone on Sodom. Did it happen? Jesus said it did. Luke 17, 29. The giving of manna. When food came from heaven, Jesus said it took place. John 6, 31. The cleansing of Naaman the leper. Luke 4:27. Just some examples. These things that occurred, miracles, supernatural things in the Old Testament. You wonder, did this actually happen? Jesus said, Yes, it happened. Essentially Christ believed that what the Jews considered scripture was scripture. He said, John five thirty nine, Search the Scriptures, for in them you ye think you ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He also recognized the Jewish threefold division. Luke twenty four forty four, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So he's he's agreeing with what the Jews say is the scripture. He's he's saying this is this is actually scripture, and he says in John ten thirty-five, the scripture cannot be broken. So what I'm trying to help you see, young people, is this This man <laughs> who lived two thousand years ago and he died and he rose again, says these things about Scripture. He he basically takes it in his hand and he says, it all happened the way it's recorded. Now you can go to some skeptic in a university whose job may depend upon the fact that he keeps denying the truth. Or you can go to the man where hundreds and hundreds of people saw him after he died, and listen to what he says about the scripture. Choose Choose your source of authority. To whom will you listen? Thirdly, establishing the reliability of scriptures by archaeological findings. Does archaeology help us understand that the Bible is true? I am reluctant to go down this road, and I'm actually only mentioning it, because... It's not that I'm totally against it. I'm just kind of reluctant to go down it. Because, you know, skeptics have a habit of saying, the Bible says this person existed. But we have no archaeological evidence that, that tells us that this person... There's nothing we can find that says this person actually existed. Right? They say that. And they've been saying that for... Well, archaeology archeolo- is about, I don't know, 200-year-old science, thereabouts. And they've been saying this all time, we don't have any evidence. And then evidence comes. They actually find something of a person that actually lived or an event that took place, and it makes no difference. It's not like they're saying this with a desire to get to the truth. And you can throw all the archaeological evidence. You can, you, can, you can ratify every event that the Bible deals with. You can say, yes, we've found evidence. Digs that prove this took place in this place by this people, or so on and so forth. And it doesn't matter a jot. But they do. They do help us understand the Bible is true, at least in some secondary fashion. Two very brief points archaeological findings support the record of the scriptures. For example, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 verified that the transmission of the Old Testament Scriptures was reliable. That is to say, all the Old Testament that was found in that time agrees with what we already have. In relation to the New Testament, skeptics like to say that the New Testament was written long time after Jesus. But there's a process where you can compare the manuscripts that we have along with the writings and the sermons of the early church fathers and so on where you can, you can see it confirms the accuracy and the, the longevity and the consistency of this message going right back to the first century. Second, archaeological findings support the narrative of the Scriptures. Not only the record of the Scriptures but the narrative of the Scriptures. The discovery of the Tel Dan inscription in 1933, 1933, 1993, pardon me, silenced the critics that denied that there was ever a King David and a House of David. So, this is just an example for you. We have no evidence that there was a King David. We have no evidence that there was ever a reign of a King David or a House of David. Then, in 1993, they find an inscription that proves that, that it'll make a difference, for the mass, vast majority, probably not. The same was assumed about Pontius Pilate. We have no evidence that he ever lived until archaeological evidence was found affirming him as a historical figure, someone who lived in the first century. Just a couple of examples. Well, that brings me then finally to my final point, which is establishing the reliability of the scriptures by human experience. Now this is subjective. It is. In a way, I end here. This isn't a lab. Proving that the Bible is true is not laboratory work. I have thought to help you understand from the point of the resurrection and the witnesses that we have, And the undeniable power of the testimony relating to what happened concerning our Lord Jesus. But there's an aspect of understanding that the Bible is true that is supernatural in and of itself. When I was the last, the Sunday night before my last. Well, let me put it this way. I was converted the night of the second Sunday of May 2002. The previous week I had been at church, which was an unusual thing for me, and to go two weeks in a row was, well, was the Lord's doing. The minister of my church, the church I went to, he tried so hard to answer my questions. And I had all sorts of questions about Noah and the ark. Other matters that related to the scriptures that just didn't make sense to me. And very typical doubts about the Bible, put it that way. And he tried to answer them. Was I really interested in an answer? No, no, not really. What happens when you, you agree with what Scripture says? What happens? Your life changes. And most of us don't want our life to change. Not if it means that we have to submit our wills to God and we have to throw our lives into the arms of another and let Him have His way with our lives you don't want that you you're not born wanting to to make yourself a slave to someone else you want independence you can see it in an infant they want to do their own thing there they are reaching out to put their hands in the power outlet <laughs> you tell them no they're looking at you trying to see you know should they proceed You can see that stubbornness, that, this, 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 this innate desire to do what you want to do. So when I admit that the scripture is true, it requires me to have done with that. It requires me to surrender my entire will. So you don't want to, and that's where I was. I did not want to surrender my will. And I think in an exasperation, the minister said to me as I left that night, he shook my hand and he said, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. He realized that all the arguments, I'm assuming he realized that all his arguments was not going to make a difference. That faith, real evangelical faith, would come by hearing the Word of God and it would testify in my heart of its own veracity and reliability and truth to me by the Spirit of God. So I end then with this, establishing the reliability of the Scriptures by human experience. First of all, it's honesty regarding man's condition. The Scripture does not whitewash who you are, it does not try to be popular by telling you you're wonderful. That, that is the essence of the books that line your shelves today. Walk into a bookstore, not that people do that much these days, but look at the number one selling books on the Amazon Sea, especially in the self-help area where you're talking about personal development and so on, and look for the books that tell you that you're a horrible person and you need help outside of yourself. Try and find that book. You won't find it. What sells is a message that tells you you can do it, the power is in yourself, you're capable, you don't have to worry about all your failures of the past, you can, you can, you can achieve this, I was where you are right now, and here's where I am today, and you can have the same. Every single book has that message. The Bible, no, <laughs> the Bible's the complete opposite. The Bible doesn't talk about how great you are. It says, no, you're a sinner. And you're far more sinful than you can even begin to understand. It was dealt with last night that our righteousness, as that is the good things Reverend Mooney talked about, the things we pat ourselves on the back, where we say, aren't I doing so well here? Those things are filthy rags. I wonder, did anyone look up to see what it meant? Because he invited you to. <laughs> I encourage you to look it up to see what it means. Your righteousness, the good things you do are filthy rags. God lays you down here. He puts you right down in the dirt, in the dust. That your heart is deceitful above all things. Above everything. You want to blame the devil? Forget it. Yes, he has his, he has his work. Certainly he's ha- he may have his work in this meeting tonight. But your heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Analyze your life, young person. Think about the things that you know are wrong, but you have an inclination towards anyway. What is the bent of your heart? Is it good or is it wicked? So as you mull that over in your mind, am I really good or am I wicked? As you mull over the reality of your existence, what you know to be true in your life, ask yourself, does Scripture testify to the real reality of your life? Or do the books that sell on Amazon Are they true? How wonderful you are. Does your personal experience, really, before the living God, testify that you're great and wonderful and don't need anyone's help? Or does your personal experience confirm what the Scripture says, that you're a sinner and you know it and you can find no help within yourself at all? So we have that first it's honesty regarding man's condition. Finally, it's peculiarity regarding God's solution. So other, other religions recognize that, that we're not perfect. Alright? Romanism, Islam, other religions will admit that man's not what he needs to be. And so they come up with all sorts of ways in which God can Reconcile, you can be as a sinner reconciled to God. They have all sorts of ways. But on every occasion, in every single occasion, except with true Bible believing Christianity, you will find there to be an inconsistency. You will find that it doesn't actually satisfy the conscience and isn't intellectually, logically consistent. When I was in Calgary, there were where our church was, and with this I'll close. Where our church was was surrounded by Muslims, and they would often come and they'd actually stand they'd smoke weed on our church doorstep and all sorts of other stuff, and occasionally our paths would cross. I would be going into the church building when they were there, and you try to engage with them, talk to them, and for the most part they're they're kind of hesitant to get into any meaningful conversation. But I would just try to leave them with one thing. Just one thing. If I can get two minutes with them. Do you believe in God? Yes. Or Allah, Do you even use Allah. You believe in Allah? Yes. Do. Is Allah holy? Yes, Allah is holy. Are you holy? no i'm not holy so answer me this if allah is holy and you're unholy how are you going to be accepted by allah how how do you know he's not going to damn you and judge you forever allah the merciful allah the merciful that's what they say they 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 they, they fall back on the the mercy of Allah okay so I say to them then alright I want you to imagine that your mother has been shot and killed and it goes before the court And there you are watching the proceedings as the man you know pulled the trigger Standing there, and the judge decides after having found him guilty or having found him unholy, the judge then decides to say, I'll be merciful and let you go. How do you feel? I remember one young man, and he just, he just stood there and shook his head. He had nothing to say. Right then, I had the moment, just 30 seconds or so, just to explain to him, That's why I'm a Christian. I said, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the one who takes the penalty. He suffers. So that Allah, God, consistently judges sin. Sin gets paid for. But not by me. By him. By him being the substitute for sinners. Him being in my place. God pours out his wrath upon the sin committed But the sinner who trusts in him, believes in him, goes free. And young people, that that, that's what you need to find in the word of God, the preciousness of the word of God. Is God holy? God is absolutely holy, and that should terrify you. God is holy. He is not, when you look at things and you search for things and you, you think, well, everyone's doing it, but, but God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He can't look on iniquity. He has no time for it. He will judge it. He will judge it without any, any dilution of his judgment for it. There will be no mercy. There will be no mercy if you're found outside of Christ. The full, undiluted wrath of God will be poured upon you for everything you've ever looked or thought about or said that breaks His law. Every single thing. And I know the Bible is true because it comes as a balm to my soul, telling me that I don't need to suffer that judgment that the entire message from the fall of Adam, the entire message is one consistent message across 1,500 years. Different men writing, contributing to this book in a uniform message telling us that our hope is in substitutionary atonement, in the Son of God, in the Messiah who will come, who will bleed and die, and be the just one who suffers for the unjust to bring us to God. And I read in this book. Pretty much every chapter. And it's telling me. It's reminding me. Of what I have. What I have in Christ. And my heart rests. It's consistent with logic. It's consistent with reason. It's consistent with my understanding of my own purpose. Everything. It is, it is, it is confirming. Every day I read it. This is The very word of God. Let's pray together in prayer. Young person. You will have your doubts. It was said last night. Pretty much every Christian who has ever lived has had doubts. So many of those doubts begin with setting aside the very instrument God has given to settle those doubts. It is when you stop reading the Word that the doubts tend to come in. It's when you stop devotionally endeavoring to meet with God in His Word that you create a vacuum for questions from the natural inclination of your wicked heart. You'll hear about it tomorrow night, the importance of the Word to sanctify us, to change us. Part of that change is that it puts away the doubts. It puts away the unbelief. Gives us rest and peace. Some of you perhaps struggle with anxiety. You struggle with all sorts of mental turmoil. And there may be many reasons for those things, and they may not be easily removed. You may struggle for a long time battling doubts and anxiety and worry, depression but you only compound your problem when you reject the Word of God. If you need any help, as always, speak to anyone of the staff. I'll be glad to speak and help you. Lord, we pray, make our young people to be absolutely convinced about Thy Word. Help them to submit their lives to its truth. May they, like many of us, become living testimonies of the power of thy word. Every, well, many of us, at least here tonight, the older ones certainly, can testify time and time and time again of the truthfulness of the word, the power of the word, the guiding influence of the word, the comfort of the word when we find ourselves discouraged and man tries to help us and nothing seems to work, how often we have found thy word comes to our souls. It's the very tonic that we need. So testify to the truth of thy word in the hearts of these young people. May they be young people who love thy word and live by it. Hear prayer, forgive our sins and continue, Lord, to help us to Trust thee and worship thee in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.